Welcome to Prima's 2017 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Fernando Bronco will discuss addiction issues and narcotic tapering in chronic pain patients. Dr. Bronco is the Medical Director at Midwest Employers Casualty Company, MECC, where he leads a team of medical professionals who work with claims administrators to implement innovative interventions to improve medical care and control losses. Prior to joining MECC, Dr. Bronco was the director of the Rosamoff Comprehensive Rehabilitation Center, an internationally renowned center of excellence in Miami, Florida, specializing in treating patients with chronic and complex pain. Dr. Bronco is a diplomat and fellow of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, a diplomat of the American Board of Pain Medicine, and a diplomat of the American Board of Addiction Medicine. In addition, he is a recognized national leader in the fields of pain management and addiction, and has performed treatment and research on catastrophic injuries. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. We are ecstatic to have you for this episode of Prima's podcast, Fernando. Let's get started. Why is the narcotic epidemic an American phenomenon? Thank you, Taquan. It is an American phenomenon for, for several reasons. Uh, one of the first ones is, as you know, I'm a medical doctor and I've been practicing physical medicine, rehabilitation, pain and addiction for uh, over 30 years. And around 25, 20 years ago, uh, the medical professionals here in America we decided that uh, we needed to start treating what's called the, the fifth vital sign, that would be pain. And there was an enormous push to make sure that patients had their pain completely addressed, and that meant have no pain. Uh, we now understand that you can't really think of medicine or pain in that way. Sometimes we, we have to treat pain differently, not necessarily just completely stop it. And at that point, even today, we don't have a gamut of medications that we can use. And narcotic medications are very powerful and they can uh, reduce the the pain uh, quite well. Uh, With that push, there was a huge spike on, on narcotic use. Uh, We also had a lack of new pain medications, and we still have that problem. They're non-narcotic to help patients. Uh, We have mainly like non-inflammatory medications, what's called the NSAIDs, and those are not nearly as helpful. Because of that, the patients start taking more and more of these medications and knowing how this process goes with narcotics, unfortunately, as you take these medications, you need to take them more and more. It's not something that that you actually have control. And another major factor is that the United States is a the largest market for uh, medications in the world. And the farm companies saw on this as a, a great source of income and revenue and obviously did a lot of investing and advertisement, uh, even in the beginning with uh, 
Even physicians say, well, narcotics do not have side effects and it's a good medication. You add those two factors, the, the, the economical factor and the physicians and nurses and, and medical care professionals pushing for a total control of pain and we got this situation. This did not happen outside the United States and it's clearly evident that now over 90% of narcotic use of all the narcotics used in the world are used in the United States, even so we only have 3 to 4% of the population. The other places didn't have those two factors at the same time. Are narcotics ever the right treatment for chronic pain? Uh, well, first we need to, to define chronic pain. Uh, you know, we have acute pain that would be the first uh, two hours, uh, two hours, first uh, two weeks of uh, of. Uh, pain. Uh, then we have what we call the subacute phase up to three months. And after three months, uh, it's considered what we call chronic pain. Uh, if somebody has what we call acute pain, they had a trauma or had some uh, uh, surgery, of course, narcotics are the first line of treatment and is, is correct. Unfortunately, after three months, narcotics have a tendency to create all these other side effects and you should have moved into different types of treatment. That means somebody is beyond the threshold as a subacute, let's say over three months to six months, it's probably not the best. However, there are certain exclusions, you know, uh, as we all know as physicians, you know, if there is a an individual, let's say an elderly patient that takes once every three or four days uh, one tablet of, uh, of a, a simple narcotic, and that makes this person very active, able to do certain things that otherwise they wouldn't. This has to be judged, of course, by the doctor, but as a general rule, narcotics are not the first line of treatment for chronic pain. What are some of the red flags when prescribing narcotics? I, I think this, you know, anybody that has worked with patients uh, uh, in pain and uh, chronic pain and, and having these medications will probably feel very familiar with some of this. And I'll give you a, a few uh, things. Uh, like the typical is a patient that is always requesting specific medications, you know, uh, only Dilaudid helps me. That's a very unusual situation because in general, narcotics help in general. Or a, they start using higher dosages without even talking to the doctor. They come back for a follow-up and say, oh, doctor, I used uh, two tablets a day instead of one because I couldn't take it. That's what we call a, a lower or a yellow flag, then you, you start offering uh, other forms of treatments like uh, physical therapy. Oh, that's not going to help me, only the pills. Then we go into what we call the red flags, the really tough ones that you really need to be very aware. If there is any legal activity, selling, forging, uh, buying from the street, uh, injecting, snorting, constantly losing prescriptions. If this patient is not able to function socially or at work anymore. There's other substances involved, alcohol, illicit drugs. Uh, you start doing doctor shopping, that means going from doctor to doctor, or failing random drug screens, or refusing to do it. That's the same as a positive one. These are all flags that you should keep in mind when you are having a patient being prescribed narcotic medications. What is the difference between addiction and physical dependency? Well, there is uh, two different ways to look at this. Uh, one is from the medical standpoint. Addiction is a much deeper 
uh, syndrome, uh, physical dependency will be part of addiction. Addiction has a psychological component, a physical component, that would be the physical dependency, the tolerance. That means physical dependency is if when you start not taking these medications, you're going to have what's called withdrawal symptoms. Also, you be, can become tolerant. It's another form of, of physical dependency. That means the more you you take those medications, you're going to need higher and higher dosages to be able to obtain the same results. With addiction, you basically have somebody that is now has the physical issue, but is also a psychological issue. That is the, the medical piece of trying to show the difference between the two. But in, in the social arena, it's better to deal with the idea that most patients are not becoming addicted because of physical dependency and tolerance. And a lot of times, unfortunately, we, we start labeling everybody addicted. And we know that in society, we have a very, very strong stigma uh, with that, that word, addiction. I personally, as a physician and an addictionologist, I try to focus with the patients with their physical dependency and their tolerance and how much that was something that they didn't have control, but they can have the control of reversing it. Those are, are the main things. Should Narcan be available to patients? Yes. Narcan is a, is a substance that reverses the uh, sedating effects and, and can actually save a, a patient's life, avoiding an, uh, an overdose and death. Is It's something that we're utilizing because uh, with the epidemic, we have now thousands and thousands of people they are dying from a narcotic overdose and as a, not that this should be uh, the way to resolve the problem uh, but this is like to attenuate a situation considering that that's the case it should be available to family and patients i don't think you should ever have more than one dosage because the idea of having more than one dosage means you can overdose more than once. That's not the point. If anybody overdosed, they need to go for treatment and be tapered off. That means there is a risk in there, but it should be offered to the patients. Also, it's becoming quite common to also have uh, EMS personnel, that they, most of them do, but even police officers that now are getting in contact with a huge epidemic of illegal narcotic medications to include fentanyl, that is a very powerful drug, 80 times more powerful than morphine, and these uh, police officers sometimes can overdose just touching the substances as they, they collect them from, from uh, an individual they're arresting or, or in any other situation. Even police officers have to have Narcan with them in case they, they get an overdose, unintended overdose. It's not that they are using the medication, but just touching it or inhaling it can actually kill the person. That means, yes, it is a, a, a good idea to have. However, it's not to be used as a, okay, then you can use as much narcotics as you want. This is a, to avoid uh, the, the worst uh, result. That's overdose and death. There are no addiction treatment centers in my area. How can my patient be treated? Well, there is, you know, most cases uh, there will be what we call addictionologists. Uh, I myself, I am an addictionologist, and so I'm a rehab doctor and also a pain physician. Uh, most addictionologists are uh, or psychiatrists, family physicians, rehab doctors, or even pain doctors. And, uh, and these doctors know how to deal with this kind of patients. My recommendation would be to try to find with the American 
Board of Addiction Medicine. Uh, they do have references to doctors throughout the country. There are actually thousands of doctors that are addictionologists and hopefully uh, recommend the patient to one of them. At least they will be able to handle the case. One caveat, I always prefer doctors that uh, also uh, include uh, physical therapy and uh, a psychological support as they do the tapering of the medications. When should an inpatient versus an outpatient program be recommended? Uh, it will depend on, on the type of patient uh, as you evaluate them. Uh, inpatient detoxification centers are much more aggressive in terms of the, the speed of the tapering. Uh, also, they're, they're equipped to deal with patients with uh, more difficulty through the process, with uh, intense withdrawal symptoms or other psychosocial issues, including psychiatric issues. That means if you have a patient that is in high doses of narcotics, uh, have some psycho, psychosocial issues, psychiatric issues, uh, is not necessarily 100% ready sometimes to, for, for the food detoxification, an inpatient program will probably be best. There, there are very few around the country that can actually do a very good job, but there are a few. You're not going to find them in every town. But you don't, you only need with this more severe cases. Most patients are able to be dealt by outpatient uh, programs uh, that can also have a component of physical therapy, need some supervision, and they are much more common around the country. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2017 annual conference, June 4th through 7th in Phoenix, Arizona. Here are some words from Prima's meetings manager, Monique Gilliam, regarding why you should attend Prima's annual conference. Our first thing to start at is going to be our welcome reception on Sunday. Our welcome reception will be over at the Sheraton Grand Phoenix, and then we'll have a number of organized networking breaks. We have our lovely trade show floor that'll have over 90 exhibitors to be able to network with. And then we have one of our most famous events called our Tuesday night social event taking place at the Arizona Science Center. So we have a number of opportunities to be able to get to know your public risk management professionals. To learn more about the annual conference, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Fernando and Taekwon. How was the morphine equivalent dosage, or MED, established? The morphine equivalent dosage is not something that doctors just decide, oh, well, let's just say that after this dosage becomes dangerous. What morphine equivalent means is that you have morphine that was our original narcotic medication, and as other narcotic medications came into play, they have a strength that is comparable to morphine. For example, if you go to the extreme, fentanyl is 80 times more powerful than morphine. That means you can have a much smaller dosage of, of fentanyl and you can have 80 times more of the, the power. And with that, there are tables that are easily found that can convert this, these medications into morphine equivalents. And groups of physicians have gotten together and reviewed the literature and looked at studies that show when does side effects in major issues like overdose start becoming significant. And as most guidelines now, BODG, the American College of, uh, of uh, 
occupational medicine or, or state guidelines for workers' comp, uh, the tendencies be between 50 and 90 milligrams of morphine equivalents being uh, a worrisome area. There is some discussion exactly where it should be, but the main thing is anything over 50 morphine equivalents is something to be of, of a concern and it should be addressed. When should a medication contract be used? Uh, a medication contract is... It's a very important piece of the treatment of a patient on any narcotic or, or, or any addicting substance. There's also benzodiazepinics and uh, um, other medications that can create dependency. It's important to establish because this, this medication contract will establish to the patient. He'll be able to read the consequence, side effects, risks that taking these medications can cause to him or her. Also, it's very important for the patient to understand that it's not to be taken lightly. That means, you know, to avoid doctor shopping, avoid illicit escalation or, or buying on the streets and things like that. And all should all be established in the contract. And, of course, in the form to, to protect the physician because it's, it's a tough situation to be prescribing this medication, sometimes not having any control, and, and then obtaining uh, information that this patient's doctor shopping, it, it will be included in this contract that the patient has to follow certain rules and uh, not do doctor shopping, uh, have urine drug screens on a random basis. This all should be established on the contract. Uh, understand that they will be discharged if any of the things are, are not followed. That means it, it is a protection for the physician and the providers, but it's also a very strong protection for the patient because it keeps the patient on the right mindset and the right ideas to, to really to be treated correctly and follow the recommendations as they're told. Why and when is urine drug testing appropriate? Well, uh, urine drug testing uh, has become uh, uh, an important uh, piece of, of the treatment uh, because of uh, the, the, the issues that some of them were we already discussed. We have issues with uh, illicit use or taking the medications or maybe not taking the medications and actually selling them on the black market or whatever, the street market. And uh, that is the, the issue, uh, that you, you have to be concerned with that piece. But it's also important to, to establish, again, a good relationship between the physician of trust with the, with the patient, the patient to understand there is certain standards to, uh, to be followed. The recommendations in terms of when to use and not to use, today we assume that anybody that's in any medications that have a, a chance of dependency should have a urine drug screen on a regular basis. Uh, this basis will change according to, to different guidelines. Uh, CDC just released their guidelines. It's mostly a suggestion uh, to do before starting the treatment and randomly after that, not to exceed three to four times a year. I personally feel that you definitely should do one before starting any medications with an addiction potential. Then do it on a random basis. Again, I agree if there is no issues with the first or the second one, uh, maybe you can do a random, a maximum of maybe twice, maybe three times a year. But if you see any issues, or you're going to have to repeat it, or you're going to have to do it more often to make sure that this 
could have been just a, a fluke or a mistake or, or, or a lab error. You know, it's always possible, but you're not going to be able to just say, okay, let's do it in six months. That means it, it is an important piece that needs uh, to be done, again, to protect the patient, to protect the doctors, and to understand. One important thing is there is pretty much two types of, uh, of urine drug testing. That is the preferred drug testing. There is other forms of testing. It can be hair, hair testing, or saliva, and these are all valid ways. But the simplest way, less invasive, is the urine drug testing. And they can be done two ways. One of the ways is uh, can be done on a... The doctor's office, that's quite common, we call the dipstick. They, there's a urine sample. You put a, a little stick that you pull it out, and it basically tells you positive for narcotics, positive for benzodiazepinics, positive for THC. That is not that helpful. It can be helpful if you want to know if somebody uh, is positive or negative for THC, for heroin and all that. But for narcotics and benzodiazepinics, it's not helpful because uh, let's say somebody's selling their medications, and it can be a, an enormous profit associated with that, you won't know just because it's positive. That person could have taken a pill only that morning but not taking the pills at all the whole month, but the only thing you're going to know that was positive. And that's what we call the, the qualitative testing. That means it just tells you the quality. Is it positive or negative? What we recommend that is a more expensive drug testing, but that's the only way to really have a a reliable way to, to make judgment is what we call the quantitative. And this is going to tell you the concentration in the urine that these drugs have. If it is a, a high concentration, a, a low concentration, does that mean that this person has not been taking the medication, just took one pill before? That means you get much more information. Even noticing if uh, if this patient is taking other medications that is not being prescribed, you know, and that's quite often to, to find. And, and, of course, all the illegal substances will be included in there. That is an important piece. Another detail about urine drug testing is that you would prefer that this to be done, what we call a chain of custody system. A chain of custody means that the, the patient is going to go through um, or a lab or, or a, a doctor's office that have in place a chain of custody system. The chain of custody system, the patient will have uh, an appropriate bathroom uh, given. There is no water running. That means it cannot be diluted. Uh, it has to be an, um, a certain amount of, uh, of urine to be dispensed. Uh, the person on site will determine if the temperature is appropriate because it should be body temperature, otherwise it's not, it's not correct. That means you need to have some form of control uh, to avoid issues of people bringing urine from other people from home or, or utilizing dilution and things like that. And this test will also give you a concentration, it's called the creatinine concentration, that will tell you if somebody put water on the, on the urine. And these are all things that that can be the case. Unfortunately, if you go on the internet, there's like websites to tell you how to cheat on urine drug screens. It's sad, but it's, uh, it's reality. But most of the time, if you do a good system and you have a chain of custody, that is, it's a, it's a good system. Again, protects the patient, protects the doctor and, and everybody involved. Uh, one important thing, if somebody says, I cannot provide you or you sample and you give time enough, let's say a couple hours, and ask this person to drink some water, and they're still not able 
to provide you with a urine sample. Uh, officially, that's considered a positive test, and with a positive test, the doctor can uh, discontinue treatment of, uh, of the patient. What is a PDMP, or Prescription Drug Monitoring Program? It's a great system. It has been established for a few decades uh, in certain states. Um, uh, Kentucky was uh, one of the first one, I believe the first one, and uh, they have been the, on the forefront of, uh, of this uh, uh, type of control. What it is, is all the pharmacies bring their information into the system that tells you uh, the number of medications, prescription refills and fills that you have with that patient's name, and then tells you the doctors when was done, and this is all going to a database, and the doctors that are prescribing can access this uh, in a very, you know, careful way. It's not like everybody has access to this database, only the doctor that's, that is in treatment. And then they can see if the, if the patient is getting medications from other, pa- other physicians. It's called doctor shopping, and, and that can be very helpful in there. Sometimes, pa- you know, doctors are, are just doing their job and, and prescribing and not knowing that this patient had issues with uh, other doctors or things like that. Most of the states will have some form of a PDMP. I believe there's only one state left that does not have a PDMT at this point. But in terms of enforcement of checking it, most states don't enforce. That means they don't force the physicians to check. A state like Kentucky, uh, they force a physician to check the PDMP in each prescription of a, of a, a substance uh, uh, or a narcotics or or another addictive substance, and that has decreased the abuse tremendously uh, on the state. That means it's a very good system. We would hope one day we're going to have a national uh, prescription drug monitoring program that we don't. That means if somebody wants to go next door to another state and and get prescription there, there's no way for the physician to, to access that. There is certain states that have some agreements like uh, Kentucky, Virginia, and Tennessee, they share their information, but that's regional. It's not a, a, an issue that, um, that the whole country has. It's more a political discussion than it is a medical. From a medical standpoint, uh, it would be uh, a good idea uh, to have a national PDMP. And, and this is, it is the future in terms of uh, making sure. Uh, of course, there are certain difficulties with PDMP. It's not an easy system to access. It's very has a lot of safety rules in it. That means it takes time from the physicians to access it, and, and sometimes that can be cumbersome and, and take time away uh, from their practices, and that's one of the reasons physicians end up not doing it. And that's what has been uh, uh, one of the questions, you know, how, how do you handle that, you know, in terms of uh, physicians not getting paid and having this this new imposition put into them. But uh, unfortunately, considering the calamity and the, of the narcotics epidemic and the amount of uh, people that have been dying, uh, those are things that have to happen and, and it is important and it will help. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Fernando and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Enjoy the rest of your day.